we still need these protests because we still need social change in so many areas. And I think it's important to note the way that history tells certain stories. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. A new mandate by the International Olympic Committee has been making waves amongst many Tokyo 2020, now 2021, hopefuls. Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter prohibits political demonstration or protest within the Olympic Village, competition venues, or medal podiums. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Janelle Joseph about the implications of this rule and what might be lost or gained from maintaining, as the IOC does, that the Olympic Games are a neutral, apolitical event. Every two years, the Olympics offer a unique opportunity for athletes from around the globe, regardless of creed, race, nationality, religion, or sexuality, to come together and not only compete, but also play, dine, and celebrate alongside one another. In many ways, the Olympic Games are the closest we get to a unified, even utopian, global experience. Athletes from warring nations sit in the same cafeterias and stand beside one another on start lines. Those without a common language share communal space in the athlete's village. There's something beautiful about this concept of setting aside difference for two weeks in the name of pushing yourself and others to be our collective best. But despite this idyllic portrayal of the Olympics, the reality is that Olympians are people first, who come to the Games with their own lived experiences. The Olympics are the most publicized, televised, and most watched global sporting event in the world. Rarely do athletes have the kind of public exposure that the Olympics provide. And for decades, many have been using this platform in the hopes of influencing positive change. Going back to 1906, the Olympics have been the site of political demonstration. Throughout the last century, athletes, and especially track and field athletes, have capitalized on this opportunity to speak out about social justice issues. In 1968, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised black-gloved fists during their 200-meter medal ceremony. At the 2000 Sydney Games, 400-meter victor Kathy Freeman carried both the Aboriginal and Australian flags during her victory lap. In 2016, marathon silver medalist Faisa Lalisa held his crossed wrists above his head as a symbol of the struggle of the Oromo community in Ethiopia. And just last year, American hammer thrower Gwen Berry raised her fist on the podium at the Pan Am Games in an act of protest against police brutality towards her fellow Black Americans. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Janelle Joseph about this history of political demonstration in these supposedly apolitical spaces. Dr. Joseph is assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto. She is the founder and director of the Indigeneity, Diaspora, Equity, and Anti-Racism in Sport, or IDEAS, lab. Here's our conversation. So Dr. Janelle Joseph, thank you so much for being on our program today. We're thrilled to have you on and excited to explore this topic with you. Thanks for having me, Kate. Of course, we're talking today about Rule 50. And Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter states that 
no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. And of course, this rule was just created this year ahead of what would have been the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. But as we all know, the Olympics have never been immune to political protest and demonstration throughout history. And I guess I, I would like to start just by getting your thoughts on you know, what, what this rule would mean for athletes going to venues like the Olympics and using their platforms. Absolutely. Well, an interesting aspect of the rule is how specific it is. So it was always understood that the Olympics were not to be used by athletes for protest, but now they have gone an additional step of specifying the kinds of protests, what's, what constitutes a protest. They've mentioned no kneeling, no politically motivated hand gestures, no political messages or signs on the armbands, and absolutely no disruptions of the medal ceremonies. Uh, and they've also specified the places where athletes can be free to express themselves. And so they are acknowledging that um, athletes do have ideas and have a voice and may have political messages that they want to share, but uh, that it can only be done in certain places. So it can't be done on the play, the field of play, the in the Olympic Village, during the medal ceremonies or any of the opening or closing or official ceremonies, but it can be done, for example, on athletes' Twitter accounts or their digital media or in team meetings. So it's interesting that they are acknowledging that athletes will have things to say, but noting that they want it to be very specific. Um, I think the implications for athletes are really manifold. The Olympics pretends that it is that sport is neutral, that it is an apolitical uh, institution, and that they want to promote peace and harmony and these really lofty Olympic ideals. But the fact is, athletes are competing under national banners. Uh, the, the geopolitical nations makes it an inherently political activity. So the idea that stopping athletes from, for example, um, making a Black Lives Matter protest would somehow make the Olympics apolitical, that's really a fallacy. So I think one of the implications for athletes is that um, they will know that there will likely be consequences if they do choose to um, raise their voice or make some gestures or um, symbolic political acts in the places where it's now banned. Uh, any athlete who chooses to do that at this time will know that there will be some repercussions. Uh, but I think it might actually incite athletes to use those spaces that are reserved as permitted to be vocal. I mean, as soon as you tell someone not to do something, it makes them think, why shouldn't I do this? And what do I have to say? So I think the implications for athletes is that it um, will stir up conversation. It will invite um, athletes to reflect on what political messages they do want to send, what um, organizations they are affiliated with. And the fact that the Olympics is such a big stage means that um, athletes will have an audience. And so once they have that audience, they need to think carefully about what they want to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's there's so much to unpack there. And I think, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is that you say, 
you know, the Olympics have often liked to think of themselves as this apolitical neutral space. I mean, those are the words we hear. And yet we know, looking back, that that has never been true. Um, there have been examples throughout history, you know, going back to the early 1900s and then obviously through sort of the second half of that century, uh, most predominantly Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists on the podium in, 19, in the 1968 Olympics. There's something so physical about that. And I think that, you know, it, it's it's an interesting concept that protest and political demonstration is almost always inherently in response to something that you're not supposed to be doing or not allowed to be doing, right? So that's that's part of why it's effective is that it's uh, it's it is protest against a, a rule or a law. And although there haven't historically been um, you know things written into the charter in the Olympics stating that there would be consequences for these types of actions, there have always been consequences. So Tommy Smith and John Carlos had their careers almost, you know, obliterated because of their decision to do this. More recently, last year, Gwen Berry, who's an American hammer thrower, raised her fist when she won the Pan Am Games gold medal um, at, at, at those games in Lima and was subsequently put on a one-year uh, probation from the U.S. Olympic Committee. So I, I guess I, I wonder what could be lost by you know, permitting athletes to have these designated spaces and times to demonstrate, but not allowing them to use the most visible platform of, you know, a, a medal ceremony or their, their Olympic performance? That's a great question. It's obvious that the, from the Olympics perspective, they believe that protecting those official ceremonies um, and uh, podium moments from protest will allow the audience is to focus on the athletic achievement. So they are really trying to promote this idea of peace and harmony and unity and national pride. And they think that by eliminating protests from that space, they will be able to promote the hard work of the athletes. And so they're not seeing it necessarily as a loss. I think from a more political perspective and certainly from a sociological perspective, when we eliminate protest from those um, venues where there's the biggest audience, what we're doing is curtailing the discussion about whatever the issue is that people are protesting about. So we saw with Colin Kaepernick and his uh, embodied ideology of kneeling during the national anthem of the national football games in order to protest against police brutality, against black bodies, that kind of symbolism gained so much attention because of the venue, because their football is such an important sport in the U.S. context, and uh, because other athletes started doing it as well. So this idea that uh, keeping it out of the spotlight out of the spotlight, certainly there were lots of people doing lots of anti-Black racism um, work in many different venues outside of the NFL for centuries, literally, uh, but without having that uh, center stage and that media attention, that corporate attention, uh, the conversation was um, muted. So mm -hmm. what will be lost by avoiding that uh, those podium moments is the opportunity for more people to think about it, maybe um, the protests and uh, 
ideas of social injustice are not on some people's radar. And so they might even not even know what the symbol means. You know, what is a raised black fist? What does it mean to kneel? And so they might start asking some questions about, you know, what is this, what is this protest about? And we would hope that they might go the extra step to think about, you know, what role might I play in addressing these social issues within my spheres of influence, within my body of work, uh, whether they work as, uh, cashier or a teacher or a police officer or uh, a scientist. So there's a lot of opportunity with those big stages for change to actually be made, to shift the cultural discourse and the actions of people who are in big or small positions of power. Uh, Just recently, I had a family member approach me uh, to discuss how to talk about racism with her white children. And, you know, this is a, a person that I have known for decades, and we have never had a discussion about racism or more specifically about whiteness. But it took the public anti-Black racism protests to raise her consciousness to the point where she's initiating discussions with lots of people, um, not just me. So when we don't have these opportunities for public protests, we're missing out on shifting the public discourse and actually making change for those people who are most affected by marginalization and injustice. I'm really glad you brought up the example of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos because, yes, absolutely, their careers were curtailed at the moment they were punished. They were banned from the Olympic Village. And the consequences of that were that they were unable to um, to make a living. Like it had a literal, physical, <laughs> material <laughs> impact on their lives. And yet, just recently, they've been inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 51 years after their iconic moment, they are now being praised and they are seen as change makers and they are being celebrated. And I think it's important to note the way that history tells certain stories. You know, we mm-hmm. want to say at this time that the podium is not a place for protesting. And there's lots of things to protest, right? Not just um, anti-Black racism, to protest uh, against uh police brutality and human rights and economic equality and LGBTQ rights, you know, the, the list goes on. We have, we are um, many, many decades uh, after women's suffrage, and yet we know that women are still, you know, making less on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. So um, we, we still need these protests because we still need social change in so many areas. And at the time when people are protesting, they are vilified. And then once the culture shifts, decades, centuries later, we celebrate them. And so if we don't give the opportunity for people to have a public stage and stand up and help us, help launch us into that culture shift, then we won't be at the point many decades in the future where we can look back and celebrate their bravery for uh, speaking up and for drawing people's attention to the important issues. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that a lot of athletes have been critical of when it comes to the IPC and uh, the IOC is that 
even you know in in very recent cases we're talking just in the last few weeks despite having this rule in place the olympics has really praised itself for you know its its acceptance and its celebration of folks like smith and carlos and not only that but in in the midst of all of the you know the black lives matter uh, protests that have been happening recently they've been showing images from that medal ceremony with those raised fists you know, as a, as a way to say we we stand in solidarity with with these types of movements, and yet they're still upholding this rule. So there's a real contradiction happening there, right? And how in terms of how they want to portray themselves and market themselves and um, maintain this this dual uh, th- these conflicting dual messages of we're an apolitical movement, and yet we support the the po- the political protests that have taken place in the past. Yeah, absolutely. They they are. Um they are awash with paradoxes, really, <laughs> when you consider that they would claim that the Olympics is apolitical in the first place. One of the things that strikes me about this rule is that they, there has not been anything um, written or stated publicly about what the exact punishment would be for these so-called offenses of, of you know, demonstrating or protesting on a podium or in a, a space of competition. And what strikes me about that is that makes it really difficult for athletes to be able to weigh out whether it's worth the risk. So we've seen throughout history, again, you know, going back to uh, Smith and Carlos, but but other athletes as well who have been sanctioned or who have, uh, as, as you mentioned, lost their livelihood. I, I think athletes have known for a long time that even if there's not a set out punishment, there will be consequences for this type of action. And yet that has always been worth the risk, um, whether it's not being allowed to compete in the Olympics again or losing your livelihood or being vilified by your country, that's always been been worth it. And so it, it, it occurs to me that it's an interesting move by the IOC and the IPC that they haven't laid out an exact set of consequences. Um, and I wonder if that makes it harder or easier for athletes to sort of uh, decide whether it's it's worth that risk, not knowing what the consequence would be. I, I would... 100% agree with you. And I think that is one of the symbols of a real uh, totalitarian regime. If they are not being clear about what those punishments are, but anyone could possibly be punished and the restrictions on what those punishments can be are not clear, then they're really hoping that by keeping it vague, they will uh, squash dissent and they will make sure that people are not interested in um, taking the risk because they don't know what the consequences will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's most people might guess that they will be uh, banned from future Olympic Games, that they, um, uh, as you mentioned, that happened to uh, Gwen Berry and uh, Race Inboden, that, you know, they might receive a, a 12-month uh, suspension. Um, the fact that athletes don't know means that they will have to take those risks uh, into account or imagined risks. And also, I think the status of the athlete and the um, other opportunities that are available to them might also weigh in. You know, mm-hmm. if how how dependent are you on this livelihood? Who are your sponsors? Do you have sponsors yet? Uh, all of those kinds of factors will, I think, be playing into who does protest and who doesn't. And having said that, then those who are uh, feeling more secure, I think, have even more of an obligation to say something. And maybe they'll start with the 
spaces where they are allowed by the IOC to speak. It's been made pretty clear that through uh, digital and traditional media outlets, they are uh, allowed to freely express themselves. And so maybe athletes will start there um, as opposed to, you know, making a symbolic gesture on the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Without knowing what the consequences are, it makes it very difficult to know whether you're willing to take the risk. So Gwen Berry was uh, on a podcast called Sidious Mag uh, last week, and she she spoke with Chris Chavez about her experience and about you know the fact that she doesn't regret at all that she raised her fist on the podium and would in fact do it again, regardless of what the consequences are. But one of the things that she said was that because she's a, and there's so many layers to this, but because she's a hammer thrower and she's a black person and she's a woman, she really felt that all three of these uh, levels of her identity sort of count against her in terms of what the consequences were for her. Um, she spoke that, you know, she, she's not a high profile enough athlete that uh, the USOC felt that they would really be losing something in sanctioning her. And the question that was put before her was if it was someone like Noah Lyles, you know, arguably one of the best sprinters in the world or, you know, in, in past years, had it been a Usain Bolt who had done this sort of uh, gesture, that it would have been construed differently and it would have been perhaps taken more seriously uh, in terms of sort of advancing that conversation. Do you think that it would take sort of a superstar of that notoriety um, for this potentially to change? If Do you mean for the rule to change? Right. So, um, you know, one of the things Gwen said was that part of the reason that she felt that she was sanctioned and that this uh, that that there wasn't a broader conversation about changing these rules was because she didn't have the notoriety that someone like, you know, a a top world class sprinter with, um, you know, a ton of sort of household recognition that if it had been someone like Noah Lyles or a Usain Bolt, there might have been a different conversation about changing the rules or about um, at least not sanctioning them to the same degree that she was sanctioned? I think race and gender and certainly the type of sport that uh, an athlete is participating in all do play a role. But I do also think it's impossible to predict how uh, protest from someone like a Usain Bolt, um, what effect that might have on the IOC. The thing you have to consider is that this is a very long-standing, very European, uh, <laughs> European-driven uh, international organization that has uh, such corporate ties that it's not easy to shift on a dime, right? Institutions like this are monoliths that take a lot of time to um change their minds, let's say. So I could imagine that if there were a a top athlete in a top sport who is male um, and maybe even who is white, who would um, engage in a really visible and vocal protest, the ways that it would be um, co-opted, incorporated, downplayed, I think the the IOC would use all of its resources to somehow make that work for them. So a 12-month ban and having that person out of the sport would probably upset sponsors and upset um, nations that um, the IOC needs to keep in the fold. And so I do think that, you know, some people would be punished differently and, um, 
if the athlete has enough notoriety, I think they would probably find a way to shift the message. I don't know if they would necessarily change the rule because I don't think they can afford to change the rule. If the podium becomes a place where athletes are using their agency to affect global change, part of the global change that they want is directly tied to the structures and corporate friends of the IOC. And so they I don't think that they will all of a sudden say, okay, protests are allowed just because <laughs> this top athlete has um, drawn it to our attention. And so now we're going to let people say whatever they want. I don't think we're going in that direction. I mean, that's obviously a full pendulum swing to the opposite. Um, so I do think that, you know, most most athletes will be punished. The severity of the punishment will shift. And I think it will also matter how that uh, protest is taken up in by the broader media, by the broader culture. You know, there have been literally tens of thousands of Black men killed at the hands, knees, guns of police um, in recent decades. And, you know, it's this one death of George Floyd on May 25th that has sparked international protests. So there's something about, you know, what is happening in the world at that time? How is it taken up? How do other people mobilize around it? And all of those factors, not least the gender, race, and sport of the particular athlete will affect how the IOC would react. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such a an important point. I mean, in, in some ways, it's just the timing is so interesting of all of this, right? Because this rule was announced in January of this year. So um, this was obviously before um, the killing of, of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, and of course, many others that have sort of sparked this con- conversation internationally right now. Um, and yet we have seen in light of what has taken place over the last month, we have seen Thomas Bach and others in the IOC say, you know, they, they've started to sort of soften their position slightly and saying, well, maybe we can have conversations about ways to um, to accommodate some sort of protest uh, that is, you know, still fits within our, our charter guidelines, but uh, sort of affords people the, the, the opportunity to express, right? And I think that that conversation might not have happened um, had, you know, un- unfortunately, everything that's happening in the world right now had that not come out when it did. You mentioned earlier that protest is so important for so many different reasons. Um, One of the things you mentioned was LGBTQ rights, women's rights. However, many, many of the examples of political protest and demonstration at the Olympics that we've seen over the last century have been in direct relationship to uh, situations of racism. Do you feel that Rule 50 is inherently a racist rule? Ah, that's a million dollar question. Is it inherently racist? I would say, I would say no, because it is couching political protest in the broadest sense. The fact that many of of the most notable protests have been around race is in part a reflection of where our culture is. And also, as we were just talking about, who 
gets noticed. When women protest, when hammer throwers protest, when there's protests happening um, in spaces other than metal podia, um, it does get uh, less attention, but it does uh, also have an effect on uh, changing the rules. For example, the Olympics sex testing rules that have shifted dramatically, it seems almost from Olympics to Olympics, the way that they mm -hmm. are um, couching the gender binary or defining the gender binary, I should say. So I don't think it is inherently racist. However, the types of protests that are gaining attention right now and um, in past decades uh, have the most prominent ones uh, have been around race issues. By shutting those down, they are shutting down race conversations, but they're shutting down other conversations as well. I also think the, the even just the idea that those protests are race protests exclusively is a fallacy. For example, with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, they were certainly protesting against uh, police brutality, but also against human rights violations more broadly, against poverty. You know, they as um, black men have black women who are um, they are connected to, who they are dependent on, and who are dependent on them. And, you know, the idea that this was only a race issue that they were fighting for with their black fists is a myth. That's, again, one example of how history can be rewritten to tell whatever story you want to tell. So they were fighting for many different rights. So um, similarly with uh, uh, Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics, although his um, mere presence on the podium was in many ways uh, a protest against the uh, German political regime of the time, the idea that the only thing that would be important to him is uh, a race issue is a myth because race in Canada and um, around the world is always connected to issues of gender, issues of LGBTQ rights, issues of poverty and uh, class discrimination. So I would say it is not a racist rule. However, it does certainly have uh, drastic implications for those people who are most marginalized and the way that our current society is set up, those are racialized bodies. It's interesting. I was I was at the 2013 World Championships for track and field, which were held in Moscow, and at that time, one of the you know biggest conversations that was being had, at least uh, amongst the athletes I was speaking with, was the fact that Russia had such a, a an anti LGBTQ stance, um, but you know politically and uh, and and publicly in many ways, and and it was made very clear at those games that athletes would be punished if they were shown demonstrating against that rule. And I know that this um, continued into the Sochi Olympics the next year as well. And I remember athletes were being punished even for painting their fingernails in rainbow colors. That for me was such a striking example um, in the, at those 2013 World Championships of, you know, there's there's always these attempts to suppress demonstration, whether it even be as, as sort of benign as painting your fingernails in, in rainbow colors just to support your fellow LGBTQ athletes. 
Um, so we've always seen examples of that. You know, one of the things that the COC Athlete Council, um, so the Canadian Olympic Committee Athlete Council, and this has been a big conversation that they've been having around not only what would the potential consequences be from the international body, but also within our own country for for doing something like this, taking a knee, raising a fist um, on an Olympic podium or in the, the field of competition. One of the things that they've been exploring is could we potentially come up with um, something that could be either a badge that could be kind of put on the uniform or a pin that we could wear that would be encompassing of, um, you know, a, a peaceful demonstration around just human rights violations in general. And it could be something that all Canadian athletes could wear and that that could potentially be the the symbol or the demonstration in lieu of um, something more physical. One of the questions I have is what would be potentially gained or lost in using that as an alternative, as opposed to something that is more physical, like the raising of an arm or the taking a knee? I think as soon as it is incorporated by the dominant body, it loses some of its significance. I think part of the idea of the protest is to shake things up, to disrupt, to draw attention. And so if everyone is wearing this symbol, while it might, uh, on an individual level, show their solidarity, it's not as impactful as something that goes against what the dominant institution is uh, is uh, requesting or um, permitting. So in recent times, we've seen lots of statements of solidarity and rhetoric around equity from many different institutions. Uh, and unless those are tied to some kind of active change, some way, not just symbolic, but some kind of action of doing things differently, then it does lose its power. So I would applaud the Canadian Olympic Committee for coming up with some kind of solidarity symbol, something that is uh, allowable and that athletes could use to signal their the passion that they feel for these social just, justice issues. But in addition to that, I think the notable protests putting their bodies in the center will draw more attention to the issue. If everyone is doing it, then it's not a news story anymore. So we need to have some way to um, activate conversations in order to actually create change. Mm -hmm. I really like the example of the um, painting of the nails rainbow colors as a symbol. And, you know, the IOC has been really clear about kneeling and about hand gestures. And I want to see what kind of creative ways uh, athletes come up, what what create creative ways they come up with to protest, um, given what has been explicitly banned and what has yet to be invented. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's not a raised fist, maybe it's a raised shoulder now, or maybe it's, you know, turning your knee to the to the side instead of kneeling. Or, you know, there's many different ways Tommy Smith and John Carlos had um, t- took off their shoes when they went on the podium. You know, there's lots of gestures that uh, could be done both uh, on the podium and in other spaces that um, might then 
uh, become memes and be taken up as a way to uh, draw attention to the social issues. Mm-hmm. But I think the key is the ways that athletes articulate their protests. Like Megan Rapinoe, the U.S. soccer player, has been really great at being clear, Colin Kaepernick as well, being clear about like, this is what I am protesting. So it's not just about the symbol. Um, it's about the dialogue that they are able to create. So whether it's something that the entire Canadian team is doing or not, I hope that every member of that Canadian team would be able to articulate why they're wearing that armband and what changes they want to see in our institution. You know, I think too about in in terms of coming up with sort of alternative ways to express or protest, I think as well about Kathy Freeman in the 2000 Olympics, um, wrapping herself in, you know, her her Aboriginal flag uh, instead of the Australian flag and and using that as her uh, example of, um, yeah, of of bringing attention to issues that felt very important to her as an Aboriginal woman and, and how impactful that was in creating, you know, dialogue within that country and abroad. One of the sort of arguments that's been put forward by the IOCIPC has been that if they do allow or permit protest, that it could potentially open the door for um, other types of demonstrations that are not so easy for many countries in the world to sort of get behind. I mean, I think the IOC has been very outspoken in saying, you know, of course, anti-Black racism, particularly at the hands of police brutality, is atrocious. But there are other potential types of uh, protest or other causes, I guess, that they're afraid that if they open the door for this, it could it could make it more acceptable for other groups to protest for things that are maybe more divisive. Um, yeah, I just I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that in terms of the, the validity of that argument. Uh, to a certain extent, I think it is true. People might want to protest against. Um, against any kind of change that they see as important. So there's uh, political wars that are happening right now. And yet, you know, during the Olympic time, those causes of certain nations supposedly take a backseat to the inherent unity and peace of uh, the Olympic Games. Uh, So I do think that those uh, nations on both sides of the war could use the Olympics as a venue to to advocate for uh, propaganda. So just as you mentioned that the IOC is clear that, um, you know, there are certain things that are abhorrent that do align with their uh, values and would support their athletes' health and well-being and uh, athletic success and success um, after their athletic careers, it might be possible to to clarify exactly where they do stand on those issues and then allow for um, space for athletes, for example, anti-Black racism athletes to protest, uh, but maybe to curtail uh, white nationalists from protesting. So I do think there is a role to play just as, you know, our our laws, our legal institutions, our schools and universities uh, take a stand and express what their values are. And then I think they should be expected to uphold those values in every instance. And so it doesn't make sense to me that, you know, on the one hand, the uh, IOC is a proponent of um, athlete well-being 
and um, freedom of speech and anti-racism, for example, but then uh, won't allow athletes to draw attention to those issues. sort of discussing all of this in um, in a way that is going to be interesting given that the Olympics are yet to be held. I mean, we have yet to see what's what's actually going to come from this, but should the Olympics go forward as they are scheduled for July of next year, what would be your hope? I mean, what, what would you like to see happen um, at those Olympics and then moving forward in terms of how this this conversation and potentially this rule could be changed or progress? I think it would be great if the IOC took a really clear stand on some political issues. You know, the the Olympics will be held in Tokyo next summer, but then after that, the Winter Olympics will be in Beijing. And so I think in anticipating that uh, there will be some athletes who will want to specifically protest human rights issues in China, in advance of that, could the IOC clarify, you know, what their what their political stance is, what they are doing to protect uh, human rights in that nation and in other nations. It would be great if they could, rather than focusing on specific athletes and what they are or are not saying, look at the nations that they are inviting to this international event and consider how they how the IOC as an organization might intervene? What actions are they taking in order to promote uh, social justice? If these are the issues that athletes are bringing forward and it's not a secret what athletes are concerned about, then if the IOC could uh, adjust and respond in advance, then I think it might make the games go more smoothly. They might be able to curtail some of those overt protests, uh, and they would be able to actually help to shift the cultural discourse and shift the uh, marginalization of certain peoples in certain countries. So what I would like to see is less attention on wagging fingers or worse at individual athletes and more attention on uh, national politics and to stop pretending that the IOC is in any way neutral. So I wonder, you know, will to, to whom will those rules apply and uh, how might we make the rules work for us, uh, us being those who are really passionate about uh, rectifying some of the social injustices that we see. Dr. Joseph, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and, and your thoughts and your expertise with us today. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. We want to thank Dr. Joseph for sharing her perspectives with us this week. The debate around Rule 50 continues in Canada and around the world. Stay tuned for updates in future episodes about how this conversation evolves. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ShakeOut Podcast. And find the most recent issue of Canadian Running Magazine online and on newsstands now. 
Thanks for tuning in and we'll chat again soon.